So when I finished last week, my wife told me that she enjoyed the sermon, but to remember next week, to you're in 2 Thessalonians, not 1 Thessalonians. So my apologies. I have been reminding myself all week <laughs> we are in 2 Thessalonians. But if I make the same mistake today, you know that we are indeed in 2 Thessalonians. Have you ever found something out, gotten a piece of information that just lifted your spirits or relieved stress? I mean, think of, of times where found out that someone had done something for me and it was like, oh my goodness, what a, what a relief. Or I was thinking this week about a time where I was in my undergrad and I had a, like a 15-page term paper due and I had been sick for like over a week and I'd missed the class. And in being sick, it just felt like I was falling behind and getting ready for finals and writing the papers I needed to write. And I got the paper done, but I just felt like it, it wasn't up to the standard. And I showed up to class that morning and was just was really down about it. And I had my paper with me, and my friend looked at me. He goes, well, that's not due till next week now. I said, what? <laughs> I was, oh, yeah, you missed class last time. I, the professor gave us an extra, you know, we had class like on Thursday and Tuesday. He gave us till Tuesday to turn that in the day we take the final. Whoa. <laughs> I was ahead of the game now. All I had to do was go back through and revise a few things. And, man, I, it was like the first easy breath I had taken in a couple days. It was just, whoa. I spent last week, or started last week, and we looked at the, the section we looked at in 2 Thessalonians, and looking about how Paul was trying to encourage this church, he's, he's pushing them farther into maturity and spiritual growth, and trying to encourage them about what he has seen and what he has heard and what they know, and now he is starting his teaching but I think that he is continually trying to encourage them because there is encouragement in knowledge. That if we, specifically knowing the future, that if we know what is going to come, that we can take comfort and strength in that. I taught Sunday school this morning, and I taught it on Daniel 7. Daniel is such an interesting book. I brought this up, but I didn't read it. At the very beginning of the book of Daniel, read Daniel 1 and 2, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the treasures, he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. In the ancient world, the, the time that this happened, that every nation had, I mean, the Babylonians had gods upon gods, but they had this main God. And so for Nebuchadnezzar to be able to take Jerusalem, to take people captive, to dethrone the king was all a humiliation, but for him to be able to go in there and take these vessels out of the temple and take them and to place them into the treasury of his God 
it wasn't just humiliation for the people of Israel, it was humiliation for their God. That this God of the Babylonians must be greater than their God Yahweh because of this defeat. Now, Daniel sets this stage with that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, that that God was in control of this situation, and he is allowing these things to happen, and then he's going to spend the rest of the book proving it. And we get to see that right from the start, that Daniel, in choosing not to eat the foods that have been probably offered to idols that would be against his moral standards of living for God, that God prospers him and the others with him that are choosing to serve God, and they are wiser than all of the men of Egypt. And it continues through Daniel being able to interpret dreams and God being greater than the lions and the lions then, than the fire. When you get to Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, and basically the second half of the book, there is more prophecy there. It is, such a, it is the greatest revelation of the future in the Old Testament that God gives all of this to Daniel, this captive. He gives him this knowledge of what is to come. While he has to live his life for God in captivity, that knowledge was for him a blessing from God. And God has given us knowledge of the future. And that is what Paul is going to be touching on today in 2 Thessalonians. Join me in prayer before we, we go to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, God, that as the creator of everything that we can see and know and understand, and God, the more more that we know about this creation, the, the more amazing it is. We know just how powerful you are. And then we know that your sovereignty is over all the earth and that while man chose sin, that you created us perfect and that that you have made a a way for us to be right with you and and in the end you will bring all things under your control and we will worship you forever. We thank you for that knowledge, for your gift of grace to us. Be with us today as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Also, I changed what I'm going to be preaching on today. We're only going to go through verse 5 today. There's just too much in there to go. That whole, the whole thought there goes through 12, but we are going to, to stop at verse 5. So I'll read First Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5. Now we request you, brethren... With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So 
Again, this is where Paul is, is moving into his teaching in this letter, this letter that closely follows the first letter. And in the first letter, there, the, the thinking that was spreading in the church that he was correcting was that those that had died had missed the opportunity to be with Jesus forever, that, that if you died before Jesus came for his church, then you, you missed out. And that Paul corrected that and that when Jesus comes for his church, the dead will go first and then those who are alive and well will be gathered up together with him in the air. Now, the error that has now spread in the church is that the day of the Lord has come. Paul introduced this teaching by urging his readers not to be shaken from holding to the truth that he had taught them. Now, don't let these other people who are spreading things divert you away from what I taught you. You know the truth. Stand firm in the truth. And the issue is, is centering on Paul's teaching on future things, on what is going to happen in the future, which Paul has taught them all of these things. And again, he's corrected the rapture, and now he's getting to the day of the Lord. Now, there was evidently other teachers that were telling them that this, this day of the Lord had already begun. Scripture describes the day of the Lord, we'll get to here in a little bit, of, of a time of, of tribulation and judgment. And the, the church there in Thessalonica was experiencing great persecution. And so as these, these false teachings started to spread... Well, that makes sense. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. You know, I think that as people, we are are so prone to that, that that if you hear something that maybe doesn't necessarily jive with what we have been taught from God's Word, but it makes some sense in our mind with what we see going on around us, we can gravitate towards that. But Paul is, is not just telling them here, he is urging them. I have given you the truth. Don't be swayed from that truth. It's interesting that throughout church history, there have been many, many people who have confused the teaching of the apostles, of Jesus himself, and saying that he was going to come like a thief in the night, that we don't know when that day is going to be, that, that we live every day for it, that the teaching we would call the imminence of Christ's return, that they have confused that with feeling like they know and, and setting dates or times for that. And we see something like that happening here where people are professing to know something they don't know and that they are in this day of the Lord, which is the end times, when Paul is telling them, don't, I've given you the truth. You know what is going to happen. Don't be swayed from that. They weren't distinguishing from what Paul had taught them in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture. Again, if you remember the, the words, the, the parousia, the, the appearing, and with the day of the Lord. The advocates of this false teaching there at the church in Thessalonica conceived that that day of the Lord was not merely at hand, which we would believe that it could come any time. It is 
since the day of Jesus' ascension until now and until ever he, he returns, we are living in the last days. This church age is God's final age before he brings things of this time to a conclusion. But they are teaching that, that we are already in that time of judgment. And that view, again, you going back to Paul's original teaching in 1 Thessalonians, that view denies them the hope of the rapture. That if they are living in that time, then <coughs> excuse me, that Paul must have been wrong, and we've there was no rapture of the church. Now, is the rapture a part of the day of the Lord? If you go back to First Thessalonians five, Paul says in verse two, "For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night." There are differing views on this. I don't believe that the rapture itself is actually part of the day of the Lord. I think it is, it is what happens for the church, and the church is taken to be with him. And then these things happen that begin the starting of the day of the Lord. I think that is what Paul is saying there in, in 1 Thessalonians, that, that this time that when it starts, when Jesus comes and raptures his church, is like a thief in the night. Not that the tribulation could start at any moment, that the rapture could be any moment. And we know that the tribulation will follow that. The rapture is, is something for the church, that Jesus Christ is going to come back and all those who have believed in him for eternal life from his time here on earth until now or whenever he comes, whether they are alive or dead, will be taken up to be with him. And the time of tribulation, as we have looked at in Revelation and in other passages, is about God bringing Israel back to himself. That is what the day of the Lord is for. It is the start of Daniel's 70th week from Daniel 9. That that is what the day of the Lord with is. And it is going to begin in Daniel 9.27 of when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel's, Israel allowing the Jews to return his land. In read verse 2, so that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Uh, again, he's, he's you have the truth. Don't be so quickly shaken. The, the truth is the foundation that we are building our lives upon. And it is a firm foundation. But they are allowing themselves to be standing on shaky ground of false teaching. That is what this, this urging is for, for them to, to remain on that firm footing that he has given them of the truth that has come from God, the truth that has changed his life, and the truth that he has given to them to change theirs. And the last thing he wants to see is, is them shaken from that. And then he describes it there by... You know, this a spirit or a messenger. Some translations use prophecy or a letter as if it from us. Uh, if you look in the next chapter, verse 17, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The thought is that what he's saying there in verse 2 is that there might have been some people there in the church in Thessalonica who were trying to lead people astray, we're saying, look here, I've, I've got a letter from Paul. This, he says the day of the Lord has started. 
Now we know why we're facing this kind of persecution. Paul makes it clear there in verse 17. They can know what his letters look like because they can see his handwriting. And he didn't say anything about that in his first letter in 1 Thessalonians, that he is pointing in 1 Thessalonians to a future rapture of the church. And if they're still there, it hasn't happened. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction. So Paul explains that before that this the day of the Lord can happen, there will be three events that will take place before that comes, before the Lord begins to judge the earth in the tribulation. And those events were the apostasy, the unveiling of the man of lawlessness, and the removal of the restraint of lawlessness, which he gets to in verses 6 and 7. The first major event is what we call the apostasy. It's, it's literally the falling away. And he refers to it as first because it re- it's implying that this rebellion is going to happen before anything else. That the list isn't necessarily given in chronological order with the, the man of lawlessness and the removal of the restraint, because the removal of the restraint is, we'll get to next week, the church. But after the church is gone, that this rebellion has to happen first so that the man of lawlessness can come into power. And that will proceed and and really facilitate the man of sin. The English word apostasy is is a transliteration of the Greek word apostia, apostasia. By definition, apostasy is, is a departure. That's why we call it the falling away. This abandoning of a position that was formerly held. Interesting, In I like reading people that are much smarter than me, especially when it comes to the original languages. Found this week, it said that in the classical Greek, the word apostasia denoted a political or military rebellion. But in the Greek Old Text testament the septuagint we find it used of a rebellion against god turn with me to joshua 22 verse joshua 22 verse 22 it says the mighty one of god the lord the mighty one god the lord he knows and may israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in an unfaithful act against the lord do not save us this day the word there for rebellion, when they translated the Old Testament into the Greek in the Septuagint, is the same word we see here for apostasy, apostasia. And so we, we view it as rebellion against God. Now this is not the same apostasy that he and, and other apostles spoke of, of elsewhere. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 3, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. And then again in 2 Timothy 4, after Paul gives Timothy the charge to preach the word, 
in verses 3 and 4, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Uh, James speaks of this in chapter 5, Peter in, in 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3, that before the rapture, before the end of the church age, there will be a great falling away within the church. But that's not what he's talking to here. Again, the church is gone. This is post-rapture. These are the events that are going to happen before the judgments of the tribulation comes. There are some that would say that what he's talking about here are, are the, how did they phrase it, non-genuine believers, and so that the rapture happens and there are, there are people all over the world who went to church every week, but they never believed in Jesus. They just were in church to, to, because they felt like it was what they had to do or, or whatever. And I'm not saying that isn't true, but it's, there are some that think that this is when the rapture happens that they will realize they missed it and rebel against God. I think this is much broader than that. I think this is a worldwide rebellion against God. And what really blows my mind about that is that it seems like we are already in full-on rebellion against God. That nations all over this world are pushing agendas that go against who God created us to be, against his moral will and law, against everything that he stands for in perfect truth and love and grace. And they are, are pushing the exact opposite. And yet whatever is to come after the church, and again, we'll get to this next week when we look at, at the restrainer being removed, when the church is gone, that we have been raptured, that we are with Christ, that the rebellion in this world will evidently be so great that, that what is happening now cannot even compare. And again, Paul is giving these signs to, to ground them again in the truth that you can know you're not living in this right now. Yes, you are facing persecution and tribulation, but this is not the day of the Lord. You have not missed the rapture. And a thing from Thomas in his commentary this week, it said, this worldwide anti-God movement will be so universal as to earn for itself a special designation the apostasy. In other words, the climax of the increasing apostate tendencies evident before the rapture of the church. And so, what we are seeing now, if the Lord were to come back now, tomorrow without the Holy Spirit here, would be ramped up times a thousand. That the world is just going to go so anti-God that we wouldn't even recognize the hearts of men and the hearts of the world as we know it now. Someone brought this up to me recently. I think it's, it's really interesting. Again, if Jesus says in Matthew 24 that only the Father knows when the rapture is going to come, I won't profess to know that, that we are living in that time, but all of the things that we see sure seem to be pointing to us to be praying, Jesus, come quickly. I mean, you see these things in the world that are happening and, and the way 
the hearts of men are turning more and more against God, but even governments now telling us that about aliens. When the rapture happens, it's like they've already got an excuse ready for when we're all gone. I don't, again, I'm not professing to know that it, when the return of Christ will be, but you can see the evil in the hearts of men and the way that they try to eliminate God from everything, and that is what will happen. There is no way they will ever say, hey, the church said they were going to get raptured and they got raptured. We should all get on our knees and repent. (laughs) No, in fact, when we read Revelation, we see the exact opposite, that even though when the judgments come that their hearts are so bent against God that they would rather die than to bow before him. This is the picture that that Paul is, is putting before them. The second thing he talks about there is the man of lawlessness there in verse 3. So the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This person, someone that is, is yet to appear who will be completely lawless, to whom God will doom to everlasting destruction. Again, this is someone that God gave Daniel prophetic knowledge of. Uh, we looked at, turn with me to Daniel 7. We looked at Daniel 7 in part this morning in, in Sunday school. And Daniel has this dream and he's describing in the image of beasts, these beasts coming out of the sea. And these are, are prophecies of empires that will rule on the earth. And the last one is, isn't even given a description of a, a current animal that we would know. It is just described as, as being terrifying and that it has ten horns. And in verse 8 of chapter 7, he says, Well, I was contemplating the, the horns. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth uttering great boasts. The eyes is a, a picture of, of wisdom and this boastful mouth is, is the pride of, of this ruler uh, who will be this man of lawlessness. And again in verse 11 he says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. But this man has a beginning and an end in God's plan, but that he is going to come. And then you turn over to, to Daniel 9, verse 27. It is again speaking of this man of lawlessness. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the, the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until the complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. These were prophecies hundreds of years before of this man who is still yet to be here now, 2,000 years later. Paul is telling them that this hasn't happened yet. He isn't here. That they might have, have seen things going on around them and thought, well, maybe that guy is evil enough. He could be him. And the church has done that throughout all of its history. If you read church history, there have always been projections of, well, that guy 
probably the Antichrist. Jesus is coming soon. We, we, but he, he will not be revealed as to who he is until after the rapture. This is not something we're going to be here for to see, oh, wow, all right, the Antichrist is coming into power. It was interesting, I read this week, that in AD 40, only a few years before Paul wrote this letter, Gaius Caesar had declared his own divinity, as, as most of the Roman Caesars were worshipped as gods. He had declared his own divinity, and he attempted to have his image set up in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. And so like in our time, like in all times, we can always see men who were evil, who are pushing their anti-God agenda, and think that, well, that guy could be the Antichrist. But Paul is saying, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And as he's going to get to in 6 and 7, that none of this can happen until the restrainer. And then he says in verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you, when I realized that I was never going to have enough time to get through all 12 verses today, I thought this would be a good place to end because it's a really interesting thing that Paul says here. Don't you remember when I was with you, I told you all about this. Yes, he has written them a letter further explaining the rapture, which he also already told them about. But think of how many believers in the church in our day and age have no interest in things to come. I just want to live a good life and I'm going to be a part of a church and I, you know, I believe in Jesus and when we leave out the things to come, it affects how we live now. That outwardly we can be living a moral life and we can have perfect church attendance but unless we are serving God like Jesus is going to come back at any moment, then we aren't living the life he has called us to. And so you think with this church in Thessalonica, Paul was there for maybe three weeks to two months. We don't know exactly how long, but he wasn't there long. And he didn't think, wow, they're brand new believers. They're not ready for this stuff yet. No. This is the important stuff that you need to know. God has a plan for the end, and we need to serve him every day living for that plan. Again, that was the repeated theme in 1 Thessalonians. In every chapter, in a way we have it divided, there was some reference to being ready for the coming back of Jesus. That Paul, throughout his writings, was continually pointing towards the end. That this is how we live our lives, every day for the end. And so if he was only there with them for that short time, a month or two, that he took the time to ingrain this in them, and now he seems flabbergasted that they have been so quickly shaken, it should make us think, how much time am I putting into knowing this and then standing firm in it? And standing firm in it meaning that it, it dictates how I live my life. Am I living for Christ in a way that just doesn't affect certain choices I make, but all the choices I make. It goes beyond morality into how do I spend my time and my money? Am I choosing to build something on him, or am I choosing to build for myself? Interesting, recently both Trevor and I joined in on a... Uh, it's an online pastor's 
group of once a month they'll do a Zoom where it's just time to, to share prayer requests and encourage one another, and then once a month they have a time of teaching. And this last Wednesday they had that, the time of teaching, and the, the gentleman taught on 1 Corinthians 3. And you see there, as Paul is he's still in his first really section of the book, that from 110 through chapter 4, that he is, he's trying to get rid of the divisions in the church, there in chapter 3, he's pointing to both him and Apollos, which was one of the divisions. Some people said they were Paul, some of Apollos. That they were both master builders building for, for God on the foundation, the only foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And he gets to verse 11. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. What I thought was really interesting about that is that he cleared up something that I think I have probably taught on wrong, a thought that he brought up that when he's talking about the, the works that will survive the fire and the works that will be burned up, that this isn't good deeds, evil deeds. That in Paul's time and even into today with some of them, wood, hay, and stubble are still building materials. But it is what are you choosing to invest your time in? The things that will last for eternity for God or the things that you were building for yourself? And that there are things that we can invest our time in and our resources into that aren't necessarily sinful, but if we are doing that instead of building for God, then we are choosing to build for this life and not the one to come. And I'm, I've said it a lot, I will say it again. The way you build for the life to come is to have that eternal perspective, and that is what Paul is trying to push here. That these things that he has taught them about are going to happen. They haven't started yet. They are going to happen. We're living our life to be ready for them, not wallowing and not doing anything, which is what we'll get to in chapter 3, because we think it's already here. We are building for something that is far greater than anything we can even imagine. And what an opportunity we have to do that. As Trevor brought out when he was going through Romans 12, that Paul talks about his opportunity to serve God is the grace that was given to him. He does that there in 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Our opportunity to serve God in whatever role he has given us is his grace in our lives. That yes, his grace in sending his son to die for our sins and giving us eternal life through faith in him is the ultimate expression of his grace. But the fact that we as sinful people get to serve him and build for the life to come is his grace lived out in our lives. And what a beautiful thing that is. And so we need to be rooted and firm in that foundation. And that as we face all these things in our life, that we know what is to come. 
that we find encouragement to face each day in knowing who God is and that his plans are good and that he wins. And we will get to serve him forever in a perfect We'll have most of our application next week. I think, to me, one of the greatest encouragers in my life of these things is studying God's Word and knowing all of the things that He has already promised that He fulfilled. That you go all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, and through promising that through Eve, one of her offspring would crush the serpent's head and then through the picture he gave them of killing animals so that he could cover them in their skins that he was promising a messiah that would one day come and make things right and in the person of jesus christ he kept that promise actually i think some of these or even most of them are some things i could have read before but i i think these are so amazing all of these promises of jesus from the Old Testament, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be called Emmanuel, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that great persons would come to adore him, that there would be killing of children in Bethlehem, that he would be called out of Egypt, that he would be preceded by a forerunner, that he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he'd be a prophet like Moses, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he would be entering into his public ministry in Galilee, that he would be entering publicly into Jerusalem and come into the temple, that he would live in poverty and meekness, tenderness and compassion, that he would be without deceit, that he would be full of zeal, preaching with parables, working miracles, bearing reproach, that he would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren, the Jews and Gentiles would combine together against him, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that his disciples would forsake him, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and that price would be given for a potter's field. All of that was told before Jesus was even born. If God could not only keep his promise to give us a Messiah, but tell us in detail who it was going to be and fulfill every single prophecy that was ever told throughout his life, we can know that the prophecies that are to come will be kept. And we can take encouragement and strength from that knowledge. The true encouragement comes in resting who 